This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. This is our third and last episode in a short three-part series over the last three weeks on AI and the future of defense. We had Steve Blank on the program two weeks ago, famed Silicon Valley innovator with uh, some rich military experience and a real mover and shaker in terms of changing defense culture. Mike Brown, the actual director of the DIU proper. And today we have the technical director for artificial intelligence and machine learning at the Defense Innovation Unit. And that is none other than Jared Dunman. Jared holds a PhD in mechanical engineering and was a postdoctoral fellow in computer science at Stanford University before making his move to become technical director of AI for the DIU a little bit over a year ago at the time of this recording. And in this episode, we focus less on the international dynamics of kind of building AI predominance between the West and China, and we focus more on the range of use cases that are present when it comes to the broad topic of, in this case, homeland security and defense broadly as well. We crisscross between the two. Jared opens our eyes a bit to just how many different kinds of AI projects the Department of Homeland Security and the DOD end up working on. Everything from mundane paper processing to healthcare-related applications and almost everything in between. There's so much to cover in the public sector that ends up under the DHS and the DOD. And Jared gives us a nice lay of the land of those different kinds of applications. I think when people think defense, they think AI for guiding missiles, when it's really not like that at all. There are smart PhDs who leave excellent schools, the finest schools in the world, uh, and work in the public sector and don't end up working on missiles for the bulk of their time. They work on a variety of other things that end up helping with homeland security that might seem more mundane, but also seem pretty interesting. There's some interesting niche use cases that Jared covers that I think will be surprising for some folks who are thinking about AI in defense or AI in homeland security. We also talk a bit about Jared's career path going from a top university and into the public sector and what public sector folks might do to be able to recruit more smart folks like him. So if you're interested in AI in defense, or if you're just interested in a wider array of AI use case understanding, I hope that this interview will be helpful for you. So without further ado, this is Jared Dunman here on the AI in Business podcast. So, Jared, I'm glad we're able to catch up. We're going to be diving into some of the broad scope of what national security AI use cases look like. But I think that your background is quite different than what people might think. We're talking to folks from the the DOD, the DIU. Talk to us a little bit about your background education-wise and how you came to the position that you're in now. Sure. Thanks, Dan. I'll give you the the winding story that's in in short form. (laughs) Go for it. career thus far is focused on developing new technologies in several interconnected areas national security, healthcare, energy, and the environment, and translating them into practice. I started out developing energy technologies. I was working on building new types of energy harvesters as an undergrad. I was using high-performance computation and applied mathematics to investigate better ways to stabilize fusion reactors as a master's student. And while I loved building new technology, and still do, I had an itch to understand the many problems that crop up when you try to take a new technology and put it into practice. So I spent a year in business school, and during that, most of that, I actually worked in Tanzania with a company that was then called Off-Grid Electric, working to deploy small-scale solar technology in technically feasible and an economically sustainable way. I learned a lot doing that and really wrestled with the decision about whether to keep working on that effort or pursue a PhD. I ended up doing a PhD based at Stanford, uh, mostly because I thought that some of the technical fundamentals that were changing in real time 
would be at the basis of the way that our economy and our society would function during my lifetime. I focused on leveraging high-performance computation and medical imaging systems to design flexible fuel combustion chambers. Over the course of those four years in my PhD, I began working with machine learning algorithms for computer vision to analyze my medical imaging data and realized how useful a tool that this type of approach could be in practice. As a result of that, I ended up sticking around as a postdoc at Stanford when I got the opportunity to work at the Stanford AI lab for several years, in particular for a guy named Chris Ray over there, who was my postdoc advisor. And I focused there on developing machine learning algorithms for decision support with support from the intelligence community in the U.S. Okay, okay. Yeah, so applications I focused on there, you know, in academia, it included medicine, energy, environment, and national security. During the course of that, it became very clear that the efficacy with which those algorithms are deployed in practice could have a major impact on the geopolitical environment and national security. And I can give you an idea really quickly of why I ended up coming to DIU after that, if that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, great. So just for context, sum up here, the project you were working on with your postdoc advisor, it sounds like was sort of supported, funded through DOD funds on some level. And so they were able to kind of push that research forward. And then you decided, hey, maybe I'll even get into work here. Yeah. What, what was it that kind of flipped that switch for you where you said, this is where I could really double down and further my career? Yeah. I guess as background, I come from a family where my parents spent the majority of my life in public service. And it became very clear to me early on that to solve truly massive problems, things like healthcare, energy and environment, ensuring geopolitical stability, government has to be involved on some level. And you know, even if I were in the private sector, government has to play a role. Of course. As a technologist, it really wasn't always obvious how I could engage government in the most impactful way. And I was always looking for it. And so I'd originally intended to go into academia or spend time in industry, translating some of that research into practice and engage use cases that way. Uh, and then, honestly, I, I ended up talking with Mike Brown, who you just heard from yeah, earlier. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the reason I decided to pass up opportunities in academia and in the tech industry to work at DIU is because it presented an opportunity to address important challenges in national security by operating at the intersection of cutting in technology, cutting edge technology, emerging business models, and critical policy issues. You know, I get to work with a diverse team from across the United States military, government, and commercial technology sectors, which enables us to bring a really unique perspective to the way that we holistically solve kind of really, really big problems. And frankly, I also get to keep learning. I get to engage folks in each of these areas, technologists, operators, business people, policymakers who consistently provide valuable insight where, again, to solve really big things, you can't, you can't just come at it from one angle. And that's something that at DIU, because we're, we're joint not only in a, in a service way across the, across the DOD, where we work with everybody within the DOD, we're also joint in a functional way because we've got six portfolios. It's not just AI, it's advanced energy and materials, it's autonomy, it's space, it's cyber, it's human systems. And being able to work with applications of AI across all of those different areas is just a very rare opportunity. So that's, that's the reason I'm here. Cool, cool. So yeah, clearly, you know, I, I think when people generally folks with a PhD want to keep learning in some sense, right? You, you didn't uh, you didn't go there to stop. Um, and it sounds like although you could work on cool problems within big tech, which would be the, probably the traditional path for a fellow with your credentials, the scope is much much wider in terms of a public impact, a wide array of use cases in the role that you're in now. And it, it felt like you know having the public and the private, the the whole bunch of different business models instead of being within one was what appealed to you in, in actually deciding to stick. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, cool. And I guess that takes us into some of the things you're working on. So a pretty diverse portfolio of what, you know, the DIU funds, what national security kind of implies. We've had national security leaders on uh, DOD folks. We had the head of AI at Raytheon on the program. 
there's a lot in you know national security might encompass, but you know some of them maybe people won't wouldn't think of top of their mind. I know one of these that you and I talked about off mic right before this interview was around predictive health. People think like, oh, well, wouldn't that be in the private sector? Or wouldn't that be some other part of the public sector outside of national security? But but apparently it is. Tell us a little bit about whatever this individual use case and program is, and sort of where AI is finding its fit, if you could. Yeah. Predictive health is something, and healthcare broadly, is something that is not just the domain of the private sector. It's the domain of the public sector in many ways, and particularly when we're talking about uh, both active duty military and, and our veterans. And in a world where the demand for imaging and diagnostic tests is continually increasing, and the amount of human beings who are able to perform those diagnostics and read them and understand them is not increasing as rapidly, we need to be able to use automation to the degree that is possible, to the degree that is ethical, and the degree to which it's functional, to be able to improve the, both the capacity of our providers to be able to give medical care you know, to the large populations that we have today, and also in a perfect world to be able to improve the quality with which they can do that. And that's never by replacing them as, you know, if you talk to a decision maker in almost any area, they're very highly trained human beings who have spent years studying what they do. The question is, how can we increase their capacity? There are two different use cases I can talk about here. One's in radiology and one's in pathology. In radiology, what you often have is human beings who are sitting reading scans. So chest x-rays is a really good example. Chest x-rays are a very common diagnostic. They're used as a pre-screen for most cardiothoracic issues. And the first thing that you would that you would do, really, when you're when you've got someone coming in the door that has a problem in their cardiothoracic area, and many of these chest X-rays end up being normal, a large number of them do, and a large number of them have you know display things that are not necessarily urgent. On the other hand, you could have a chest X-ray with a collapsed lung. Now, if I'm a physician, the way that I currently read those scans, there's a work list, and this is where it gets into the nitty gritty of not just hey, can I build a really cool algorithm that does X, Y, and Z with high performance? This gets into no BS. How do we build something that provides value in practice? And in this case, radiologists will read the scans in the order they come in, yep. right? Because that's, that's yep. where the cues put together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can just, you don't have to replace them and say, hey, can you read the scan for me? If you can just say, look, in, a reason, in an automated way, can we use a machine learning algorithm to take scans that look like they might be bad and throw them to the front of that queue? There's sometimes critical minutes, hours, whatever they are so that the things that are of highest priority get read first, you can make better use of the radiologist's time and you can make ensure better outcomes without, you know, without a whole lot of change to your workflow. You're just optimizing something that wasn't being optimized before. Yeah. So that, that's one type of use case we see. And I can, I can pause there if that's yeah, helpful. Or I can- let's, let's pause there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super familiar with this vendor ecosystem. I did almost too much homework on diagnostic tech for a keynote for the, the World Bank at one point. And we still talk to all the vendors in that space. The AI doc, for example, great example of folks that consciously have minimized workflow change. Healthcare, the last place I try to sell AI. Good gracious, I've said it a hundred times in the show. I would I just I wouldn't even mess around there. So hard to get tech to stick. So you got to be real minimal with your, your your shifts there. But yeah, just the ability to order those things. There's a big vendor play there. I mean a lot of people chasing down those dollars. Where and why is the national security, you know, even folks like yourself, I'm not saying you shouldn't be, I'm just, I'm unaware of where you guys also fit in. Do you partner with the, the vendor folks in the cutting edge? Are you developing stuff in the public sector that maybe couldn't use existing vendor solutions? Where, where do you guys come in here? This is a great question. And it hits at, DI, at the way that we do business at DIU. So let me give you an, give me, give you that overview. Sure, and tell please you do that. Please do. 
What we focus on at DIU is really delivering kind of transformational or strategic capabilities to the DOD by accelerating the adoption of commercial technology and strengthening the national security innovation base. So what we focus on is there are buckets of technology, I would say. And if the DOD says, hey, I want to be able to do X, there are several ways that we can think about doing that. The first question is, did government build this already? And you know, if the government built already, great, we should use it. You know, maximize taxpayer value. If nobody's built it, you know, you should say, okay, well, maybe we should go think about building it. DIU operates in the middle where government didn't build it, but it's been built by the commercial sector. And there are areas where, you know, this, those six portfolios that I mentioned earlier, that private sector investment has been enormous compared to public sector investment yes. in the last yes, couple yes. of decades. Yeah. And in those areas, unlike, you know, in the 60s, 70s, where DOD was uh, doing a bunch of research and then eventually pushing that out to the private sector, which we still do in a number of areas, some of these areas, we actually need to be taking things in because the most cutting edge technologies are being developed outside of DOD in the commercial sector. And so what we focus on doing is this is finding these areas where commercial technology has developed a capability that could be really useful for the DOD and for the government. And we need to bring that in. So we focus on running programs that are called commercial solutions openings, where uh, we work with a DOD partner to find a need, and usually one that, that has funding, where there's a need and there's problems and there's money to solve the problem. We then go and look at the commercial sector and say, all right, is this a thing we can do? You know, is this something that's viable where there's a product where we can get this into the DOD quickly? Not in R&D, but is this something that is being done right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we run a pretty short you know, process uh, where we do a, you know, put out a solicitation. We have a uh, bunch of bids come in. We do a down select and we get folks on contract you know, within, you know, within a pretty short period of time. And the goal there is to be able to then do the following. The initial program that we run there, it's called a, it's a prototype contract. So basically the idea is, let's see if this works. And the idea then is, if it works, if that vendor is able to meet the success criteria of that project or of the DOD sponsor, there's a contracting mechanism that, that we use that allows us to then take that prototype solution that worked and make it available to anyone within the DOD. That's what where DIU plays. So this is a, a place where, as you said, there is there is a giant amount of you know kind of vendor work being oh, yeah. done here. Oh, and the DIU's goal is not to say, oh, we need to do that too. Our goal is say, hey, we can use that to make you know service members' lives better. Got you know, let quickly get this in the door. And see if it works. Yep. And if it works, let's make this available as widely as we let's, can. Let's double it down and scale it. Yes, yeah, sure. Great, great. Okay, I'm going to go a little bit into that, and then we can roll into some other use cases. I appreciate you giving us the the background. This is very helpful. So I would imagine, you know, when you say, can the DOD use this in this context in, in kind of predictive health, we're talking about, is this uh, veterans hospitals? Is this maybe that kind of a context when you say DOD, kind of in this case? Yeah, yeah. in this case, it's, in this case, it's mostly, you know, active military treatment facilities that are mostly focused on active duty. Okay, but, you okay. Know, sure, sure. But in a perfect world, yeah, you, you know, you'd be able to expand this to, you know, veterans hospitals, et cetera. Got it. Got it. Okay. So yeah, so those facilities, just like, you know, the hospital down the street from me in Brookline here, they run x-rays, they run MRIs, they've got plenty of imaging and, you know, can they use this? Can we have this operate in these different places, catch lung cancer earlier, catch, uh, you know, whatever, you know, whatever we want to pick up on, you know, you mentioned the thoracic deal, the chest area, for some reason, everybody, everybody and their mom wanted to start there. Uh, probably because of how common the scans are in that in that body area. But there's rife opportunity, right? The, the cardiothoracic, I mean, so many players, big opportunity for you guys. Is your role 
as a fellow who understands kind of the, the requirement that the DOD has, also understands the core tech, is your role to play a part in the vetting, the construction of what that pilot is and how it's measured? Where, where do you come in just from this standpoint of your work? Yeah, well, dude, and I'll make two comments real quickly. Please. One, people start with check surveys because most people hate, most radiologists hate reading them and there's a ton of them. Yeah, so yeah. starting doing something that people hate doing is usually hey, a good way to get Might as well about. automate the stuff people hate. Sure. Yeah. Yep. And secondly, there's a there's another angle on what you're getting at here, which I, I want to highlight, Great. which is this is also a way where in addition to bringing those products into the DOD, the DOD, for instance, for pathology, has one of the biggest data sets in the world on, on pathology. Hmm. And so by working with vendors to build models that are, you know, that work well for the DOD population, um, by using some of those data sets, we're also able to ideally help push out the benefit of a lot of that data that, that the DOD ha- has been able to, to collect over the years to kind of society more broadly, which I think is a very positive aspect of a lot of this. this Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Go ahead. So secondly, you know, where do I fit? I fit in a very fun place from my perspective. When we're going and curating problems, we have a defense engagement team that works with folks in the DOD, goes out, talks to them, you know, is on the ground, figuring out where the problems that are well-suited for a commercial solution. I often sit and kind of go along with those folks and, and try to understand exactly and hone in on exactly what the technical specification of that problem Super is. You know, what's, the disease, what's the disease that's causing the symptoms? Yep, yep. We then go back and say, all right, is this something that's available, that, that is, is being done commercially? Now, that doesn't have to mean that it's, it's an API that's offered, you know, and, it, and it's all, you know, fully baked. Probably There's not. Anything, yeah, probably not. A product where I know that, say, a big tech company is doing this task internally this way. Or there are companies that are series A, series B, that they've, they've got a good product, but they are still doing development. When it falls in that bucket of something that's not available in the GSA, so I can't just go buy it off the shelf, and it's not an R&D, but it's in between those things, and it works, that's where we say, all right, we think we have a, there's a really, really good argument for doing this. And presumably we work with a commer- we have a commercial engagement team inside DIU, who I also work with, and they make sure that we talk to kind of as many folks as we can on the commercial side to figure out, hey, is this a viable thing to be, that we can do on the commercial side? I talk to folks in academia all the time, making sure, hey, technically, does this make sense uh, when, I, when I don't know the answer, which you know, is more often than I care to admit. But once we get alignment around that, that there is a comment, that there is a DOD problem that can clearly be solved by commercial technology, and there's a common, consistent, reasonable technical thread connecting those two things, then we go in the try to calibrate risk and say, all right, how do we craft this problem set? How do we craft the problem statement such that we have a high floor and a high ceiling? Ideally, we're going to try to calibrate the type of risk we're taking on. So in a perfect world, if someone asks me, hey, you know, can you build a, an algorithm to, uh, you know, can you build us a workflow that'll help us read our radiology scans faster? One answer might be, yeah, sure. There are some, some kind of traditional ways we do this in industry. Maybe they don't scale that well, but, but we can get you something that'll work and we can solve your problem. That's the floor. The ceiling is we can actually integrate you know, machine learning algorithms directly into your workflow in a way that provides you value and allows you access to the, you know, and, and, and expands your conception of kind of what is possible. And starts you thinking about when I solve my next problem, I'm going to solve it in a different way because my, my conops now, my concept of my operation is different. That's a, that's a fun term. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I, it takes a lot. It's like if we've succeeded, we not only have we solved your problem, but we've changed your conops. Like we've changed the way that you think about what you're doing. Well, this is 
crazy important, Jared, just as a, a cyborg, because you know I, I operate in the, the private sector, so it's a market research-wise, we, we service a lot of the vendor ecosystem in terms of reach and whatnot, but enterprises, you know, big life sciences, big FinServe companies, logistics companies, they're the ones that want to do business to get the private sector landscape, some of the stuff that you guys probably do on some level, but we have our own ways of assessing stuff. Super important for them to understand the difference between a point solution, sure, we can solve this problem, versus a level up in our data and AI maturity and a level up in kind of new capabilities that bloom out of that, new ways of doing, uh, new, new ways that we solve whoever our users need is at kind of a higher level. It sounds like you guys have this ConOps term. I'm wondering if I can start integrating this. I'm like, oh, that's a cool one. Like maybe I should use that for a little bit of sex appeal about this idea. But the rethinking of the problem, being able to open that up, clearly it's, I'll tell you, that cultural shift it's hard as heck in the private sector. I can imagine in the public sector, it's incredibly challenging to get that model shift to occur. But it sounds like it's something you try to emphasize or, or at least think about in your, your procurement process here. It is. And it's partially, you know, there, there's multiple reasons. I mean, in the public sector, as in the private sector, we're always trying to do the best job we can. Yep. At the same time, to be able to move the, you know, move the aircraft carrier when, you know, again, if you were at a Fortune 500 company, it's a big organization. They do things in a way that works. And to make the argument that you should do something in a way that's different, you either need to have something that's broken or you need to be able to make a very, very clear value argument. And that's the type of thing that we aim to do. Uh, but I'll also say that in the spirit of some of what Mike was talking about, there are certainly you know competitive aspects of this and making sure that you can have a, a department in the government that is functioning at the highest level possible from a technological standpoint. And that requires not only thinking about, yeah, cool, we can go and do this cool experiment with this technology, but also, are we, are we going the last mile? Are we doing this the right way? Is our testing and evaluation as rigorous as it should be? Are we aligning with our own principles of, of ethics, laws of war, all these sorts of things in the, way that we, in the way that we should? Are we treating different populations, for instance, in the healthcare case, are we treating different populations Will these algorithms cause our populations to be treated in a different way? Will there be bias in these algorithms? These are things that from the public sector, in the public sector, you, you have a, not just a fiduciary duty, but you have a, a direct duty to public good to make sure that we're doing these things the right way. And so at, at DIU and a lot of, along with a lot of our other DOD partners, you know, the Jake, a lot of our other partners, you know, thinking about this and, and trying to be as both deliberate as we can and, and as precise as we can, as we think about how exactly we should state, you know, the problems we're facing, the, you know, potential upsides and downsides and the risk and reward of what we're doing and make it very clear why we're choosing the path that we're choosing. All of these things are hugely important. Getting tests and evaluation, as you likely know, on the commercial side for AI, systems, it's not a, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to monitor, to monitor models post-deployment. You can't just test them and chuck them out the door. So all of these issues are things that we think about all the time. And that's another aspect of, you know, I'd say be, it's it's a it's a fun reason to be uh, to be part of the organization right now because all those all those problems they can be hypothetical sometimes in academia in industry sometimes you can you know you can build things for context where maybe maybe errors don't matter as much yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah in a lot of applications in government you know the end result really matters yeah um, and yeah. you can't there, there's not really a way to say yeah we can pose the problem in a way where if this fails you know it's going to be fine. And that's both that that's challenging. It's it's frightening, but it's also um, it's also really rewarding. Yeah, big opportunity as well. It, you know, yeah, the fact that some of the most you know largest successful, relatively agile in terms of tech adoption companies in the United States 
you know, are still wrestling with these problems. It means in the public sector, they're, you know, they're doubly challenging. And so you certainly have your hands full, but it's working on some of the most important stuff. And, you know, speaking of most important stuff, I know we're spilling a little bit over, which is fine for me here. I want to touch on at least one more use case before we, we wrap up, if you're okay with that, Jared. And you had talked a bit about improving backend processes. Honestly, I kind of, I really enjoy some of the stuff that people think is boring. You know, the, the, the efficiency improvement and backend process stuff across pharmaceutical world or insurance or whatnot. So much value to be had here. So many abilities to kind of level things up digitally. Where where does some of this backend automation process work fit in in the DOD's context? What are you guys working away on and where is AI starting to find its fit? There are a lot of processes that folks over the years, if folks are familiar with um, RPA, so robotic process mm-hmm. automation, there are a lot of processes where folks have just realized, look, doing this thing that we need to do a lot requires humans to click a bunch of buttons and do a bunch of things in a very repetitive fashion. Now, what was our original solution to that? Well, let's build RPA systems. Let's allow people to build workflows that link different applications in a way that's repeatable and allow them to to push that work off to an automated solution. Now we're in a world where we actually have cases where folks have, say, imagine I have a case come in in a backend financial system, and there needs to be some resolution on this case. Well, that case could go to one of 10 different RPA solutions. And what we actually spend our time now is figuring out which RPA workflow to send these things to. And we spend a lot of money doing that because in the DoD, we have a ton of that stuff. And so there's a high level idea here, which, well, the thing that's coming in the door, we're now in a world where that data that's often unstructured, it may be in text, maybe semi-structured, it may be dirty. Images, we can use whatever. machine learning and, and actually do a pretty good job of just saying, look, okay, fine, this thing, you know, we have a problem, we need to fix the problem. So the case comes in the door, it needs to go to one of these 10 RPA workflows, instead of having humans sit there and read through all of, all this thing, try to figure out what's going on. Uh, just say, hey, we can use machine learning to say, yep, you go there, you go there, you go there, you go there. And all of a sudden, you've taken a set of folks who were being, who are spending their time doing this and enabled them to do something at a higher level and say, okay, let's look at overall system health. How are we doing? Are there errors happening in the system? And they're able to not just spend their time doing the individual task, but we're able to abstract that to a higher level. And the reason that I like that is that the particular application we're working on can benefit from this. You know, we may be able to save hundreds of millions of dollars doing this, but at the same time, that pattern that, Hey, we've got RPA and we're using it in a bunch of places. Let's see if we can automate or massively accelerate with with computation the way that we're using those RPA systems such that we can take our humans and put them in a more productive part of the of the loop is something that's really exciting and it's a generalizable pattern. It's something that at DIU, um, I think I mentioned this, I mentioned you know building building knowledge graphs is another one. Yep, yep. There are repeatable patterns that we see that we can use to provide value in a number of different contexts, which is why that's exciting. Yeah, smart organizations in DOD is an awful big organization, but smart organizations, even in the you know, private sector, you think in terms of capabilities. They hopefully also think in terms of AI and data maturity and, and the rest of that and, and having you know, talented leadership. Obviously, you guys are you know, working away there as much as you can too. But uh, yeah, broad capabilities. Hey, sure, this is something we can do here, but is this a broad capability that can unlock value in a bunch of other places. And what you're bringing up, you know, I, I can I can only imagine the paperwork processes in the DOD. I mean, there's got to be, there's stuff for if you want to join the Marine Corps, there's stuff, if you, there's paperwork for everything, right? So we could probably get specific about what your workflow is, but let's just call it 
procurement, let's call it healthcare for veterans, let's call it who cares, it involves 20 pieces of paper, you know, so some complex bunch of stuff where, hey, if it's this form, and it's in this way, it goes through this RPA system. If it's in an image format, it goes to this RPA system, but it has to be inputted this way, blah, blah, blah. What it almost feels like to some degree, the example in conversational interface is that companies have really struggled to actually converse and succinctly answer questions that are anything more than low-hanging fruit in, in almost any industry, at least right now. But what they have been able to do is reasonably well estimate intent and say, this person 97% wants a refund, let's route it to who handles refunds. So at least we save that step. And what you guys are talking about is almost like intent detection, but it's like which RPA detection for whatever this initial input is. Is that the right way to maybe think about it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just a, yeah, it's just a matter of saying yeah, we, you know, it would be difficult to enumerate all of the possible cases. Oh yeah, crazy. We see one, we know what to do with it, but it's just difficult to write down all the rules. Those are cases where machine learning tends to do a very good job. And I'll also say that there are one of the really good ways to target these types of applications and use machine learning in practice that we found is just find places where the baseline is low. If the baseline is a human has to look at every single one of these things, the human probably doesn't like doing it. It's not like there's a highly tuned system that's doing it already. So finding, it sounds like a silly thing to say, but I, I've seen this, this error mode in industry too, you know, trying to apply, you know, a new fancy thing to an area where there's actually already a very highly tuned solution may not always be the best bet. We spend a lot of time looking and figuring out, you know, what are the things we hate doing most and where do we waste the most time? And where's the baseline? Where's the bar the lowest? Yeah. Where's the bar the lowest where AI is also the right tool for the job? Because there might be some place where the bar is low and it's like, whoa, we can have a set of rules that saves a shit ton of time, right? Like, like there's some cases where we don't even need ML, but there's some cases where the bar is low. It's a crappy process because none of the previous IT can actually handle this. And like you said, hey, let's start where, where those opportunity spaces are big. I think that's great advice for the private sector as well, you know, as opposed to competing with all your most cutting edge systems. So clearly you guys are finding some opportunity there. I'll also say that that's part of the process of building a building a, a you know a real solution with my engineering hat on, right? I, I joke sometimes that we, we could also be called the data science portfolio because you know, a lot of folks come to us and say, you know, look, 90% of the problem here is getting your data where you want it, when you want it, and showing you the things that you want. And actually, as part of our kind of testing and evaluation, one of the things that we found is when as part of testing and evaluation, I ask vendors, what's the baseline here? Like, what's the set of rules that you would use? Like, what's the simple, what's the 80-20 version of this? We actually find that the 80-20 version of this provides a lot of value. And the, and the customers are working with are like, well, actually, that's really useful. Like, even forget the AI that you're going to put on top of it. Like, that itself is really useful. And so even the process of posing your task in a way that is amenable to an algorithmic solution, be it ML or not, has been you know, very useful for a lot of folks and the, the customers we see. I could write a book about that exact topic. And I, in fact, I almost want to do an interview series on exactly what you've said, because in so many spaces like document search and discovery, it's like, hey guys, what do we want to be categorized how when we're searching for our documents? Like, let's just pause and ask that question because we're going to train an algo on it. It's like just the thought process, good gracious, how much value is there? And you guys are bringing that thought process, that database thought process to so many different dark corners. And there's value sometimes from what you're saying, just doing the thinking, just thinking about the process, the structure, the data. So that's really cool. I know we're about to wrap up here, Jared. Maybe there's a couple other fun projects you're working on that would surprise people in terms of what the DIU is working on that you could mention here as we wrap up? Yeah, I'll hit two. Great. One is a project that uh, we actually recently finished running. It was a, challenge, a prize challenge, which is, a, I would say, a program that, type of program that DIU runs rarely, but I, th I think we've had you know, a good history with it. 
And we're able to take data from, say, areas in the government. We're able to work and get it labeled in a way that makes sense and actually put it out for the public, anybody. So, you know, public sector, private sector, individual contributor, whatever, companies to try out uh, and see how well they can do. And you might say, okay, well, that sounds, that sounds nice, but what did you do with this? Well, some of my colleagues here at DIU in the last year or so went through and actually took a bunch of pre and post natural disaster satellite imagery and came up with a way working with CAL FIRE, with FEMA, with the Air National Guard, with a bunch of folks in the uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster response world to figure out how to, how to label buildings that have been destroyed in a way on a damage scale that made sense across fire, across mm. flood, across, mm. across kinds of things. And the data set that we released was actually a set of these pre and post disaster satellite imagery, you know, satellite imagery pairs that were labeled with where are the buildings and which ones got destroyed. Because if you're a first responder and a giant natural disaster hits, one of the first things that you would ask, for instance, in the last California fire season is which buildings got destroyed, which areas may be safe for me to pass, where do I, how do I need to prioritize my response? And humans looking through all of that imagery takes a while. And so again, this is a case where if we could build an algorithm like that, we could save folks a lot of time and ideally improve the quality of our disaster response. You know, we, we, so we built that out, you know, we built that data set, we released it to the public, we got over you know, 2,500 submissions. Uh, the, the top algorithms that, we've, that, that came in the door, we, we actually repackaged and uh, worked with some folks at some of those stakeholder organizations I mentioned, try to roll this out to support the kind of recent response to the California fires. You know, ditto with with some of the recent hurricanes, et cetera. And so, and those those, by the way, the the weights for those models, the code for those models, they're sitting up on GitHub, so anyone can use them. Anyone around the world can use them. Cool. cool. Um, we've had interest and a lot of use from that. So that's been really exciting, and we're looking at for more of those in the future where we can and where we can add value. And then, secondly, I'd say there's an entire area of projects that I could talk about where folks ask me like, "Isn't NLP exciting?" And I say, "Yes, natural language language processing is exciting." But what's most exciting is the fact that you can really scale our ability to automate knowledge-based construction and, and kind of building knowledge graphs from the ground up in a very... Why is that way. important for you? Like, I, you know, I can imagine, I can extrapolate, but I'd love to hear one or two examples because it's almost endless. Like, yeah, knowledge graphs, useful, certain domains. Like, I know in life sciences, they're so important. Yeah, wh- where do you use them? In general, what, a lot of what you care about as, you know, if you're in the government, a lot of what you care about are, you know, places, things, and people. Where are they? How are they related? What's going on? And so if I am, you know, for instance, if I'm trying to work on a problem where I care about where is X in relation to Y, how, you know, if I'm looking at supply chain security, for instance, and I'm trying to figure out how are different companies related, who's supplying who, you know, we just had a recent, I would say, introspection about uh, American supply chains and, you know, where they're vulnerable, you know, things like, you know, personal protective equipment, et cetera. If you think about that type of problem, the way that you have to analyze that problem, if you want to do it at scale is, okay. I see company X, it's related to company Y, Z, Q, you know, whatever. It maybe has a hundred yeah, different yeah, yeah, systems. Yeah, yeah. If you have a human try to parse through millions of documents to figure out how these relationships happen, it's going to take you forever and you may not get it right. If you're able to build a knowledge graph, which is going through all those documents, extracting, you know, the company, you know, the people, the places, the things, the companies, figuring out how they're related. Are they investors in each other? Are they customers or suppliers? And then being able to build out that graph, which says who supplies who. And if I lose this, like which of the nodes, if I lose them is problematic. And, you know, are there ways around it? Or are they in danger of, you know, kind of financial insolvency? And that's worrisome. All of those things you can start to investigate with these types of knowledge graphs in a way that is just at a scale and a level of precision that would be very difficult for a human to do. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and now obviously in the traditional DOD sense, you know, if we have some nefarious parties or groups, you know, that might be doing dangerous things somewhere, we might want to know, you know, where they're getting their money from and kind of who they might be connected to. So there's the more pure defense side, but even like you said, supply chain side, even then, okay, we still need to know about solvency. We still need to know about weak points. There's just so many areas where who connects to what and how does this stuff work and what are the relationships is just critical. And it sounds like knowledge graphs for you guys is a, a whole space to explore right now. Yeah, it is. Cool. I mean, it's something that drives a bunch of commercial products. It's something yep. that, you know, we technically know how to do. But if you try to say, hey, I have a specific application, I want to take a specific set of documents and rapidly build a bunch of, you know, models for named entity recognition, relation extraction, and kind of create that knowledge base and build graph neural networks on top of that. That's something that we can do. But I wouldn't say it's it's productized to the point where I can turn the crank. And that's the place where, where DIU spends a lot of time looking. Cool. Excellent. So yeah, just a, a great a panoply of things that maybe folks wouldn't have thought of top of mind when they think national security. The bucket is rather broad and you've certainly got your hands full, Jared, but I'm glad you were able to peel away some time and spend some time with us for an interview. So thanks so much for being able to join us here on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. So that's all for this episode of the AI in Business podcast. Thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. And a big thank you to the DIU who took time aside from two of their leadership, Mike Brown and Jared Dunman, to be able to be part of this series. I knew that once we had had Steve Blank on the program, it would be great to get some other great defense perspectives. And we're really happy to be able to have these two excellent guests with us from the DIU over the last couple weeks. Kicking in next week, we're going to be back to a broader perspective of AI industry and trend coverage. So use cases, trends, and ROI of AI right back to usual kicking in next Tuesday. So I hope you'll join me there and I hope you got a lot out of these episodes. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social. We've been delighted to see more and more folks follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter over the last nine months or so since we've been mentioning it on the podcast. You can find Emerge at at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter or Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on LinkedIn or on Facebook. Follow us there to not only get all of our podcasts as soon as they go live, but also all of our latest articles, infographics, and trends as well. So at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter, just Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research on other social platforms. We hope to have you as part of the conversation in addition to having you here as a listener. So again, thanks so much for tuning in all the way through. I look forward to catching you next Tuesday here on the AI and Business Podcast.